Hey, thanks for downloading Oh Great What Now. We streamed this last week, but for better or worse, most of the issues we talk about are still relevant. Side note, that kind of tells you how fast the news cycle goes, where we're like, hey, remember that thing that we were up in arms about seven days ago? This time, it's still relevant. <laughs> this is a shorter episode. My guests are Joel Silberman, a political consultant and screenwriter, and my new kittens, who are Lyra and Ollie. And if you missed the stream, you can see pictures of them on our website or Facebook. It was a really interesting conversation. We talked about, you know, the border situation and also how Hollywood influences politics, which I thought was really interesting. The big news, though, is that tomorrow, July 2nd at 7.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Improv, we are going to be having our next show of Up Close and Political. We've got stand-up from Tom Tran, who's a, a Purple Heart winner. I guess it's not really a winner. You know, you receive it. <laughs> it's not a prize you want to win, really. Sophia Alexandra, who's been in Comedy Central and is hilarious, and some really interesting professors and columnists. The topic is America and who we are as a country, something that I keep seeing come up as a question on social media, and is really at the heart of a lot of our partisan conflict. So I hope you come out to that. You can get tickets on our website, upcloseandpoliticalshow.com. We're also live streaming it, so you can tune in online. And without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to Oh Great What Now, the weekly podcast for Up Close and Political. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh -huh. This is a very, as you can see, uh, well-oiled machine, this podcast. Um, but we do have kittens, and we have a very special guest today, Joel Silberman, who me. is a, uh, a writer, a political consultant, a screenwriter, um, also a guest in our apartment, staying with us for the weekends. So can you tell about us a little bit about yourself and your, your background and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, I have a lot of titles at this point, some of which I've earned, some of which people just described to me. Uh, but I am first and foremost a, a writer and have written for LA Times and Huffington Post and blogged my opinions uh, which are political and sometimes funny, much like Toby's. Sometimes is a very general word. <laughs> I'm a magnanimous son of a bitch. Um, but Somewhere between 1% and 99%. <laughs> yes. but. So I'm also a screenwriter. Uh, I joke that I am at the very top of the bottom of the screenwriting heap, uh, which is to say that uh, I keep almost succeeding there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like one exec decision away from y'all knowing who I am, or at least something I've written. Um, and there's a lot of people like me around in L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also, on the side, do political consulting um, and uh, have been working pretty extensively with a group that uh, group of L.A.-based writers who have been punching up speeches for uh, congressional candidates, for uh, sitting senators, for... A variety of political types, but executive you know, orders. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, my feeling on the Trump administration has been that just just to get things off with a real a real bang, that I don't love the policy, mm -hmm. but you got to find the silver lining, and I appreciate uh, the attitude towards women. <laughs> so you just gotta you gotta take the wins where you can get them. All right, and. Uh, I'll, I'll count that as a win. I like feeling like I'm superior mm -hmm. for no other reason than because of my genitals. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll uh, cut that out and 
uh, making sure that goes viral. <laughs> Thank you. As uh, our new guest, you know, sudden viral sensation, controversial figure, Joel Silberman. Is he telling it like it is, or is he going too far? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a fine <laughs> line between clever and stupid. That is <laughs> from Spinal Tap and also a motto for my life. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, uh, all right, so a lot of things happened this week. Um, uh, most recent thing, I think, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was denied service in this restaurant. That's the latest, like, tempest in a teapot. And, you know, I saw, I did see some liberal friends of mine saying that, you know, I dislike her, but I don't think she should have been treated like that. I don't know. I can't really shed a tear personally for it. Again, you know, if you're a private citizen and you're going to take the stand that you can refuse service to anyone and no one can force your labor or whatnot, then I feel like it's not the worst thing. Completely agree. I think that... As a liberal, I am sworn to uh, anything that protects groups and says that you can't deny service to a group, but to an individual. That right, the right to deny service to any individual has been there for a very long time. There's no question that there's a legal right to do it. Then you just get to the ethical aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And from an ethical point of view, yeah, sorry, but we've reached a point where if you're in this administration and you're committing these kinds of abuses or covering for them on a regular basis, then you should expect to have some kind of consequences and not being able to eat in a fancy restaurant and having to go to the fancy restaurant down the street, like that seems like pretty small slap on the wrist, all things considered. Yeah. My favorite response to this has just been, I've seen some folks on Twitter say it, I can't take responsibility for it myself or take credit for it myself, is that we should just say, no, it didn't happen. That's incorrect. It didn't happen. It did happen, and then that would be giving the Sarah Huckabee Sanders treatment to mm-hmm. it. It yeah. didn't happen. So I don't know. Well, I guess the next thing to talk about, the biggest news of the week, is Trump had an executive order that sort of ended the child separation policy, or at least he said that's what it did, um, and in exchange for the ability to detain families um, while their sort of asylum cases are pending. I was actually you know, listening to people talk about this, and... You know, they're saying sort of, well, family detention isn't as bad as family separation, but it's still not what should happen, which is like releasing people as sort of, um, you know, into the communities and stuff like that um, while their assignment claims are pending. But then other people are saying, well, then, you know, then they're basically just able to claim asylum and get in and stay in America while and over the years that their cases are pending. So it's, you know. That's not really a great policy either. What do you you think? Do you have a... Well, first of all, we actually have numbers on this. So anybody who's saying that talking point about, oh, they're just going to stay in the country and not show up to legal hearings and all that kind of thing is full of shit. They literally don't know what they're talking about. Over 90% of the people do show up to their hearings. Um, I think it's maybe even over 95. I can't access those numbers off the top of my head. Uh, It's 99? Okay, see, this is why... We need to have fact checkers off camera who are able to look stuff up at any given time. So over 99% of the people show up to their hearings. Uh, that's pretty good. You can't get 99% of people usually to do anything. That's first of all. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, uh, to to take the issue to re- where we're really going with this, uh, Trump tweeted this morning. I don't even know if you saw this yet. I haven't. That we should be getting rid of these people as soon as they come across the border. They should be sent back where they came from with no due process at all. And that, of course, leads to the question of, well, 
there are going to be inevitably some people who get caught who didn't just cross the border. They're maybe citizens, maybe they're legal residents, maybe they're people who are going through a due process, and they get sent out. Um, this is all going in one clear direction, and that direction is grab people and get them out as quickly as possible, no due process. And uh, usually when that kind of thing happens, uh, for one, it's called ethnic cleansing, and for two, it ends poorly. <laughs> ethnic cleansing usually ends poorly, I would say. Um, well, uh, you know, every group has their way of doing ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just kind of shows, just like it's how they do everything. Like, the Germans, very efficient about it. But that's how they do everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you do it in Rwanda, it's going to be a little bit more of a free-form kind of thing. And mm-hmm. in America, the way that we do this kind of thing is that we do it, but we deny that we're doing it. Because we've kind of always had a little bit of a split personality mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, we're the cradle of liberty, but also founded on slavery and genocide. So what we're, what we're doing is just the same thing that we've done when we've had these kinds of atrocities in the past. You just do it, and then you deny that you're doing it, and then somewhere along the way uh nobody ever agrees on it <laughs> so i guess i you know I've, I've been arguing with people online uh about this issue a bit and you know one way if i'm if i'm honest that i can see that there is a problem with you know the asylum process is you know i can see even if people are shut, showing up to their court hearings if you have a five to six year long process where only like i think under 10 percent of asylum applications are really approved but you're able, because our courts are so completely backlogged and it's an intrinsically long process to try to gather all this information and stuff like that to document a case, you know, you basically have a de facto, you know, six, several year pass if you want to live in the country to claim asylum and then get placed. I mean, that said, I think that one thing that is unfortunate is people take that as the whole story. And, you know, we have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty and due process, as you say. And obviously there are going to be a lot of people with completely legitimate cases. I mean, it's crazy to me that Trump can call MS-13 animals and they're go to the, you know, and, and, and go into great depth on the evils that they commit, as, as he does with ISIS, and deservedly so. They're terrible people. They commit a lot of heinous acts of cruelty. But they're also going to create victims. <laughs> I mean, that's what these people who you're, 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 you're so afraid of are doing, and those victims are going to look for someplace safe to go, which is, in theory, should be the country that promotes itself as the you know, bearer of the torch of liberty. And uh, you know, we've got a statue, something to that effect. And um, yeah, so it, it's, I, I can understand that there's parts of our immigration system that are, are, are not great. They're broken. They're um, you know, they're not as streamlined as they should be, but I don't think the solution can be to deny people their right to asylum, which is a legal right, um, or their, uh, you know, ability to find, yeah, their, their due process or, or, or just, you know, the humane, humanitarian act of giving someone shelter who might be murdered, <laughs> you know, these are people, you know, um, but, you know, I think the solution is to, fix our immigration system, and in the meantime, continue to give people those rights. Well, I would agree with that. I would also say that if somebody ends up being here for five or six years, and five or six years from now, because things can change, things die down a little bit in Mm -hmm. El Salvador or some of the places where they're fleeing violence. A little uh, closer. A little bit closer? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, I often get told a little bit closer. Uh, <laughs> not as often as I'd like. Uh, but look, you know, you've got somebody who's Jewish coming to America in 1941, and they end up going through a legal process for six years, and at the end of it, you go, actually, you got to go back to Germany. I'd rather be a Jew in Germany in 1947 than 1941. So uh, giving somebody a little bit of time, the question is whether you fear that person while they're here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and my point of view is like, we're a pretty tough country. Mm -hmm. Um, if we're going to be worried about these families, then we've got bigger worries because, uh, they're not that scary. And if we don't think that we can tell the difference between somebody who's coming in as part of MS 13 or something like that, and somebody who's fleeing MS 13, then we're dumber than we think. And we're also making the same mistake that we made with my ancestors 70 years ago, where they said, well, the Jews, you know, they could be agents of the Nazis. We don't know. Well, mm -hmm. that showed people's ignorance at the time, and it shows people's ignorance now when they say, well, some of these families could be coming in and they're MS-13. Mm, that's not really how MS-13 rolls. And also, they literally write it on their foreheads. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, not people that hard. Like, Shh, I'm an MS-13. I'm going to infiltrate. They're like, yo, I'm an MS-13, motherfucker. I'm a... Yeah, they don't really hide it. Right. <laughs> it's not part of the, the spirit of it. Right. Um, and also, and, and thank you. organization. Yeah. And uh, by the way, thank you guys for, for joining in. I see we have some people um, popping into the live stream. Feel free to ask any questions you have or participate in the conversation yourself. Um, yeah. One thing I've been... I've been saying is that it's courage, right? We, we talk about ourselves as the home of the brave, you know? And if you, what bravery is, is accepting a personal rips to yourself in order to do the right thing, right. which is the definition of what it is. I mean, yeah, that's the definition. And the execution of that is not being like, well, if there's three Skittles in a bowl of a thousand that are, that are poison, we can't, you know, right. we can't save them. Um, well, By the way, in this analogy, each Skittle represents a human life. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is how I usually feel when I eat Skittles. But, but there's a word that we've, I think, forgotten in this country. And now I sound like an old grandpa. Like, there was a time in this country when men were... Uh, but that word is nobility. Mm -hmm. And we should be and have in episodes of our history been a noble endeavor. Mm -hmm. And there is more to us than reaction and fear and slavery and genocide and this kind of stuff that we rightfully get dinged for and criticized for. But there's also been a nobility. Mm -hmm. This has also been the place that said, give us your tired and poor and huddled masses. And that then we've taken that and turned it into a source of strength. And, uh, you know, I always use the, the analogy of metal, not metal music, but like actual physical metal. Because, uh, you know, you look at steel or some of these other very strong metals, they're alloys. Mm -hmm. And when you take different kinds of metals and put them together, they become a stronger kind of metal. I look and I say, well, we've taken different kinds of people mm -hmm. and we've made a stronger culture that has really conquered the world. Mm -hmm. um, that's great. And why would we stop with that? melting pot, which actually I know a lot of people on the left don't like the melting pot analogy anymore, but they should because it has made us strong, unique, a leader in a globalizing world. 
And so I see these folks coming in and I say, we have a nobility in our character historically that has shown up from time to time that we should be calling upon to bring people in crisis into ourselves. And once we do, we've also seen that it makes us a lot stronger overall as a country. And it's one of these rare things where there's a win-win with pretty much no cost. And uh, how often do you get to say that? I'm just so glad that we're placing tariffs on metals, <laughs> you know, literally. You uh, know, I listen to a lot of Judas Priest. You mm-hmm. cannot contain metal. <laughs> metal, is, it goes across borders. Mm-hmm. You can't stop the metal. <laughs> uh, metal is for all. And that's that's my stance on on metal. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, and this is a little bit apropos of nothing, but just because we're talking about metal, uh, there was recently a documentary I saw on uh, metalheads in Botswana. Have you seen that? No, but that is very on brand for me. I need to check that out. <laughs> yeah, um, metal is interesting. I, I, like, I feel like. I've never like never really been able to get into it myself, which you know, but yeah. I, I feel like it's something that pops up in my life. I had a coworker at a restaurant who's always listening to you know the most complex metal and like mm-hmm. trying to you know he's in a, in a band and stuff like that, and it's just this odd thread that I see from time to time, the subculture that sort of fascinates me a bit. Well, it doesn't surprise me that there was this documentary about heavy metal in Botswana because as someone who's part of this global subculture, it is a genuinely global. Mm-hmm. subculture and people who are into it there's no one who's like casually into it like i saw rob zombie interviewed at one point and he was saying i've never seen that guy who's like yeah i was really into slayer for like a summer like i've never <laughs> seen that guy it's either yeah. like i have no interest or slayer you know like <laughs> and so like i you know when toby asked me to be on this podcast uh we were talking about different podcasts that he listens to and was asking what i listen to and I never listen to podcasts because there's so much metal <laughs> to listen to. Like if I'm walking around listening to music in my headphones uh, or listening to something on my headphones, it's going to be music and almost certainly going to be metal. Mm-hmm. Although metalheads, little secret, sometimes will listen to progressive rock just to chill. Um, anything that's like kind of atonal, discordant, Lots mm-hmm. of weird time signatures, and then they'll go back to something chugging and aggressive. I'm sure that this is what people care about. <laughs> yeah, we have lost a listener too. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious, and, uh, you know, um, uh, whatchamacallit. I'm just curious, you know, and, and if you could distill the essence, what is it? Because I'm sure, you know, people look at you, they don't assume you're a metalhead. No, they do not. What is it that gets people into metal? Um, if someone was curious, like, maybe I could ha- be a latent metalhead, what should they listen to? What should they know about it? Um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I guess the the place where a lot of people start is Iron Maiden mm-hmm. uh, or Metallica, the, the forefathers, uh, and then they go in from there. I think that the thing that appeals to a lot of people about it is the sense of power. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people who love it, they hear these power chords and people singing over the the chaos of it, uh, and they feel a sense of power because they put themselves in the position of the singer mm-hmm. who is rising above. People who don't like it feel like they're on the receiving end of that power, 
Interesting. And that's also why there are a number of women-fronted groups now, uh, Nightwish, Hailstorm, in this moment, um, Unleash the Archers, who have really powerful women fronting them, and they open up a totally different audience because pe- women hear it and they go, oh, I'm actually, like, I'm her. I'm that mm-hmm. woman who's kicking ass. Yeah, as opposed to the people being, you know, Whose ass is getting kicked. Out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh, cool, interesting. I've never heard about that that way before. Um, I'm full of interesting shit. <laughs> well, speaking of which, we were having a conversation last night. Uh, we saw The Incredibles 2, which was, I thought, very, very good movie. Very but fun. Very enjoyable. Uh, but we were talking about sort of like the rise of the superhero movies and them representing, you know, sort of different mythologies and morals, which are now, I mean, since it's a very international industry, you know, you have places like China where they're sort of hearing American values in the context of superhero movies, you know, where maybe the government is the bad guy all of a sudden. And, you know, is that going out? Is that a way to to globalize that message in a way that, uh, you know, they might not be able to do just directly? Well, I look at the superhero phenomenon, this was the conversation we were having last night, as a modern placeholder or rebirth for mythology, which has always had a key part in human existence. It's been part of how we talk about our values, explore the issues of the day with big over-the-top stories about gods who uh, are in conflict with one another and who are themselves in one way or another directly or indirectly dealing with these kinds of complex issues. And in a globalizing world where we are constantly exposed to, whether online or with our neighbors, people who don't share the same mythological narratives, the same Mm -hmm. religious kinds of narratives. We want something that we can all come together around and share in the same common gods. And I think that in our modern culture, uh, that's Iron Man and Captain America (laughs) and Thanos, who is himself from uh, Greek mythology. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a a titan. Oh, okay. Uh, And then Thor, of course. Thor, of course, Norse mythology. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, and, and to your point about the about oppressive regimes, uh, this follows a long, superheroes follow a long classic pattern of stories that are so fantastical that they're not directly a threat to the, the political orders of the time. Mm-hmm. And so they come through the back door. I mean, the same thing happened with Christianity mm-hmm. throughout Europe where uh, the the story as it got bigger so it was less about just some guy and more about this god well that's much harder for uh, a state to crack down on mm-hmm. and that's part of the reason why uh, the Soviet Union tried to crack down on religion is because uh, these larger than life stories allow people to question things mm-hmm. um, but it, it wasn't sustainable you can't you can't contain these kinds of stories it's interesting the role of storytelling um, in uh politics and that sounds almost cheesy to say but i think that uh it's real in the sense that people connect to stories of of victims or heroes in a way that they don't connect to abstract issues or policy or analysis and also you know there's a saying which i don't know if everyone has heard before but politics runs downstream from culture and so you know you create cultural values and the people you like and the people you idolize and then that ends up showing up you know downstream 10 5 15 years later, um, in the types of politics that we have. 
Yeah, uh, one of the things that I've actually observed, and I don't know if there's factual merit in it, but it seems right, uh, is that I think Hollywood created Donald Trump not only through The Apprentice, but also because of the dominant narrative for 15 or 16 years prior to his ascent to the presidency was that of the antihero. And it was Tony Soprano, Walter White, uh, Iron Man himself, Tony Stark. These are all guys, Dr. House. Mm -hmm. These are all guys who it's like, yeah, he's a jerk and he's abusive and he's this and he's that, but he saves lives. Mm -hmm. And so Trump was then able to put himself into that mold and people would say, yeah, well, he's a jerk, but he's he's my jerk. He's saving lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was downstream of this cultural anti-hero moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was part of the reason why I, not that anybody would ever listen to me at that level at this point, but was saying, like, Hillary Clinton could be a great anti-hero. Um, <laughs> you know, like, if I were writing her campaign slogan in 2016, it would have been Hillary Clinton, the bitch we need. You know, like, <laughs> Just, like, she, she's a badass bitch. She's going to take you apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's going to... Nasty do- woman. Yeah, exactly. What I was handed to her by Donald Trump. <laughs> right, but, like, you know, that should have been running on that for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that those who make entertainment, and I know that there are a few of them who listen to this podcast, would be well served to say maybe it's time to try and get back a little bit to the actual hero, benevolent character, mm-hmm. because we need those. Yeah. And I do believe they exist. Yeah. No. I'm, I mean, you're looking at two of them. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> are you listening, Hollywood? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's like, screw the Hemsworth brothers. Look at these Jews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it shouldn't be hard to find a hero in people who are saving the less fortunate or, you know, able to take a risk and, you know, take in refugees or people who are suffering or, or fleeing violence. But um, I was working with a candidate. Actually, I'll shout him out. His election day is uh, is on the thirtieth. I think it's the th- no, it's not the thirtieth. Whatever this coming Tuesday is, maybe uh, that would be the twenty sixth. I think. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I did his early media, and I haven't been involved in the candidate for a while. A guy named Chris Supern, who's running in Texas as an independent. Uh, he was a Republican elector who refused to vote for Donald Trump in twenty sixteen and uh, now running as an independent for Congress. Uh, And I was talking to him when I made his announcement video just about who he is and his bio, and he's a first responder, a career first responder, and he was saying, I just do what anybody else would do, you know? And I was like, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. Like, most people don't run into the burning building. Most people, like, he was at a baseball game, and somebody was choking two sections over, and he runs over, and Heimlich's the guy, and... I'm like, most people don't do that. Most mm-hmm. people look and go like, I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, it seems like I might get in trouble or something if I try and intervene. Yeah. Uh, but there are those people who go out and inject themselves into the middle. Of the no. That was a cat that just jumped on my lap unexpectedly. Very adorable, but like scared the shit out of me. Um, so, I'm, so I'm a guy, I'm very courageous. I will go out and get in the middle of trouble. But if a tiny, adorable kitten jumps on my lap, I don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> look at this. I can take. Yeah, look at you. Look at you. You got to give me some warning, bud. You got to give me some warning. You startled no. me. Okay. Um, yes. 
I will notice. Uh, These cats are no more than 10 weeks old. They're 10 weeks old. Uh, you know, we took them from the animal shelter, just doing what anyone would do. We're not heroes. <laughs> okay. I understand the confusion. I'm not a hero. <laughs> I get it. I get why you think I am. Yeah. But I'm not. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think that is something that, you know, <laughs> it's funny because, like, we used to have sort of the idea of the hero as the sort of strong, silent type who would do, oh, I'm just doing what anyone would do. I'm not going to take credit. And there's, you know, some truth in that, I think, also. Like, people who are genuinely heroic, they do it as a reflex or right. because they've trained or prepared and so they don't feel like they should be judged by how they just reacted in a particular moment sometimes. And then Trump, <laughs> obviously, is the guy who wants to take the most credit for doing the least. Right. Um, well, I think that we have a moment now where we just distrust heroes we distrust people who have that instinct um and and like superman in the latest iteration is kind of an anti-hero it's like superman really yeah um so. yeah <laughs> you know that that 80s superman just always virtue signaling <laughs> you know? that virtue signaling <laughs> um which mccott uh, <laughs> yeah well we promised kittens in the in the preamble and in the status so you got him we have two new kittens, and you they're here to... You the cat, you got the cat. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing was, I sort of feel like there might be a sort of a flip happening right now where liberals are discovering that they need to be better at low-level political organizing on a, on, a, on a local level and getting those local offices. And conservatives are realizing generally that they need to do a better job of storytelling but i think that in a way hollywood has done their job for them in sense of, of trump but i feel like you know there is this i i've seen this drive in you know libertarian and conservative media to sort of get better at connecting with younger people and, and having a more accessible message rather than um trying to uh you know rely on or uh, you know, older viewers or, or, you know, in Libertarian's case, more like abstract philosophical arguments, you know? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that I've uh, observed now knowing people who work in politics or who have worked in politics on, on both sides of the political aisle is that each one thinks the same thing of the other one. Like, you talk to Democrats and like Republicans are really good at messaging and storytelling. They don't know anything about policy and the way that anything works, but they're great at mm -hmm. communicating and blah, blah, blah. And Republicans will be like, oh, those Democrats, they don't know anything about you know, running a business or a policy or whatever, but they're good at storytelling and communicating and mm -hmm. uh, because both people think that it's just the other side winning. Whenever the other side wins, it's because they have better PR and they're cooler and they're whatever. <laughs> it's not because... They have better ideas. Yeah, or, yeah. Right. It's not because of the substance, but... Um, I do think that there's a real commonality between Donald Trump and Barack Obama, and for that matter, Bill Clinton. Um, w is a little bit more of a complicated case. I think that there's a real commonality between the political candidates who win, especially at the top levels, where they are able to tell a story about themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and Barack Obama told a story where, in his narrative, a guy who was mixed race, who had a Muslim name, was American as apple pie. And in the frame of that narrative, which then stuck mm -hmm. with a very significant portion of the population, well, of course that guy should be president. And Donald Trump used a narrative of himself as the antihero. You know, I lie, I cheat, I do all this stuff, but I do it for you. And he was able to tell a story very effectively. And I think people who end up 
losing. I mean, I think about John Kerry in 2004. He had created a great story of himself as war hero mm-hmm. turned politician that then was destroyed. And I think that they underestimated at the time how much damage that did to him, mm-hmm. uh, how much the, the swift boat stuff hurt him because they weren't looking at, well, this is the core of his story. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a heightening of awareness that humans have never really communicated with one another with facts. You know, the Bible, everybody knows that there's five books of the Bible, but there's only two books that they remember, and that's Genesis and Exodus, because those are the ones with the stories, the Old Testament, that is. Okay. Um, cool. Uh, well, one thing I want to jump in real quick is... You know, when you talk about Donald Trump creating his story of I lie, cheat, and steal, but it's okay, you know? Right. I mean, obviously, I his supporters you. don't believe that, right? right? To some extent, like, they don't believe that he's lying to them. They believe he's the truth teller and the media is lying. So how, how do you— They believe that he's the truth teller because he will say—if you say—if you're acknowledging that you tell a, a mistruth every once in a while, that you cheat every once in a while, that you do this every once in a while— that makes you seem more honest. Mm-hmm. It's the guy who says, like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a bad guy, but, I'll, I'll, but I love you. You know, mm-hmm. like, people... He just exudes the sort of bad guy vibe to conservatives, you know? He doesn't or he does? He does, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. But, I, yeah, it's, it's odd because I feel like they may, at some level, connect with that message but i don't know but at the same time i wonder if you polled like conservatives or trump supporters what percentage of them would would agree with those statements that he sometimes lies that he's acknowledged that he's had affairs and stuff like that you know right well i think a lot of people will say that he's the most honest politician around but ironically they will say it because he has said bad stuff about himself yeah and he's acknowledged (laughs) it so it's like, well, if you acknowledge it, if he says, well, and I don't actually think that he said I lie. Mm-hmm. I think that he, but he, but he said it in as many words. Like with this North Korea thing, he said, uh, you know, there's a possibility that in six months or something, things fall apart, but I'll deny that I said that. Yeah. Or something. I, I'm yeah. misquoting, but that was the idea. Yeah. But I'm not going to admit it or something. I, I remember hearing it. that. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because he, he'll always play to a room, you know, in some sense, like he's playing. Mm-hmm. He got a big laugh with that, you know, because it's a room full of media, you know. Yeah. But, um, no, the guy's a performer. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think we'll wrap up soon. But I, uh, we do have a question. Ari says, um, hey, Toby, do you mind touching again on the concept of the anti-hero, especially in relation to Trump? Uh, especially, which, what leads to the support and popularity of an anti-hero, especially because it seems so counterintuitive? So I don't know if that's. I feel like we covered that a bit, but yeah. But I would. I, I can add something to it. Part okay. of the reason Trump never polled above eighty percent with Republicans. There was like twenty percent who were still resistant to him, mm. right up through election day, especially when he was believed to be losing. You know, if he was down in the polls, uh, there would be a consequent dip in approval from Republicans. Um, And then when he beat Hillary Clinton, the flip switched because for a lot of people, Hillary Clinton, the switch flipped. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is that flip switch? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, depending on how, what you call a light switch, it could be either, but that's uh, true. But yeah, 
because at that point he became, well, he's an asshole, but he saves lives. He saved us from Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that's going to break the cult of personality around him and his narrative of being the anti-hero who can get away with anything because he wins is for him to lose. Mm -hmm. So that's why when I hear progressives talk about all these other things about lawsuits and uh, Stormy Daniels and Avenatti and and Mueller and there's tons of stuff that's going to come out with Mueller and all and, and uh, all these kinds of investigations. But the thing that's really going to bring this guy down has to be just beating him and showing mm-hmm. that he's not actually a winner. Mm-hmm. He's a huge loser. Mm-hmm. So fair enough. All right, on that we will leave it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks and for me, having me. I mean me and my kittens. That's the us. <laughs> that, that's great us. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Appreciate it. And, oh, big announcement. Uh, our next live show is going to be on America and the American identity, who we are as a nation. That is coming right before Independence Day on July 2nd at the Hollywood Improv, 7.30 p.m. Check it out. Get your tickets now. They're on our website, upcloseandpoliticalshow.com. Very excited for that one. And thank you again. Have a good rest of your day.